shepherding us. Let's see. It's a joy to be here with you this morning. Let me see if I can get my... Am I on? We're good. We have a thumbs up. Thanks. Um, what a joy it is to be with you all, some visiting and uh, some with us who are old friends. And uh, it's a joy and a delight uh, to be with you, to have good excuses like weddings and the arrival of children, to gather together. And most of all, the Lord uses those things to give us an appreciation of, of how much He loves us and He's blessed us because this is really the greatest gift. I know for our family, weeks can be crazy, and if we can make it to Sunday to be with Christ and the people of God, you know, that's a, that's a huge amen for us. Well, I want to start with a, a question this morning, um, after we finish celebrating weddings and the arrival of children. It's very much in keeping with that. What, what makes you angry? What makes you angry? Could I have my first slide, please? Okay, last week at Cornerstone, you'll recall I cited this article that caught my eye back in September in the Wall Street Journal. And the title is is up there. It says, Adults are throwing tantrums in restaurants, planes, and at home. Blame the pandemic. Okay, and I mean, this is, you know, a story that we're all familiar with, right? We've seen all the footage on YouTube and the newsprint, and we've seen this going on really for quite some time. And obviously, as we've come out of uh, shelter in place, we've seen it intensify, not get less. The craziness and the intensity and the outbursts of anger in places like Trader Joe's and Target and all of these places where we carry on our activities of daily living, they are just there. And it seems like respectable and nice and genteel Americans suddenly have become ticking time bombs. And the implication when we look at the title of that uh, article is that something or someone other than ourselves forces us to be angry. Right? You think about that question I asked. Then it was a bit of a setup, I admit. What makes you angry? What makes you angry? We ask that question frequently. What's making you angry? And when you think about that question, we're so used to asking that question maybe of ourselves or others, and we think we're doing people a kindness and a favor, and we're trying. But the idea is something else is making you angry. You are not in control. You're losing it. Something has come over you. I had a friend of mine who is a pastor. His son told him, I think, Dad, I'm possessed by demons because at school it's just something takes over me. It must be demon possession. The devil must be making me do it. Something's working. Well, as we think about this, brothers and sisters, this, this title of this article, it's, it's one that aptly summarizes our nation, our times, but very specifically, and this is a little uncomfortable, this is how people of privilege respond to the loss of power and control. This is how people of privilege respond to the loss of power and control. And power and control, the nice way in America that we refer to those is freedoms and rights. Okay? Freedoms and rights are, are power and control. What happens when your power and control is taken away from you? What happens when your God-given rights and freedoms are taken away from you? How will you respond when people invade your space when you're shopping? And very frequently we see what happens is, just like the children we raise, we throw tantrums and we blame someone else or something else, or someone other than ourselves for what's going on in our hearts. And as we return to Matthew chapter 2, God shows us that from Adam to King Herod, this pattern of anger and blaming someone or something else for what's going on in our hearts is nothing new. It's as old as mankind. And it is merely a symptom of prideful and rebellious hearts that are angry with God. Yes, we blame our circumstances, but you pull on that chain far enough and go back. We're angry 
with God for exposing how fragile, how weak, and how powerless we and our kingdoms really are. And when I use that word kingdoms, I'm referring to a a sphere of power or control, a little area that we're in charge of. And that little area, that little kingdom, can be something as small as the space in our refrigerator that we share with roommates, to the kitchen sink, to our marriages, our workplace, or our church. Our kingdoms, our spheres of power and control. And as we come to Matthew, what Matthew shows is that as as Christ enters into our life, as the gospel comes and enters into our lives, Matthew is saying, according to God's word, Jesus is God's king. Jesus is the new king. And as Jesus enters into our world, God begins to show us that our kingdoms are not as big as we thought they were, and we are not the kings or queens that we thought we were, or we would like to think we are. We're not as much in control of our little fiefdoms as we'd like to imagine. And as Christ comes in, as the gospel comes in, inevitably it turns our world upside down really right side up as we like to say but it should it should make us feel uncomfortable it should rattle us a little it should rattle us quite frankly a lot and that's typically what happens when something more than just saying i accept jesus into my life happens things begin to change we begin to lose control we begin to see that things in our life are are not the way we would like to think about them or had hoped and it gets at times, uncomfortable. And it's actually a grace and mercy from our Lord and Savior. Because what God is beginning to do in our lives, brothers and sisters, and you know, today, the mortal sin in America is to make someone feel uncomfortable or to hurt their feelings. If we do that, God forbid, it's worse than murder, right? And yet... What God is really graciously doing, and He's lovingly doing, is He's showing us that the real King we need is not us, it's our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that the true King is God, not us. And His kingdom and His word are infinitely greater than we are. And that's our big truth for this morning from Matthew 2. That Jesus Christ is indeed the true King and His kingdom is far greater, infinitely greater, than we are any of the kingdoms that we like to hang on to. And this, Matthew points out, is a truth that a world that is very messed up, filled with people who are very messed up, like you and I, desperately need. Messed up people need to get smaller. And Jesus needs to get a whole lot bigger. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. And we'll start reading at verse 7 through 20. Matthew's account of how how King Herod responds to the entrance of a new king into his kingdom. And the good news that Jesus is indeed the king and he's a king who's bigger than our temper tantrums. Matthew 2 verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men. The Magi. And he secretly summoned them and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country 
by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in this God-breathed text, and our focus this morning is really going to be on verses 16 through 18, but we read much of it just to give us the context. God, in this text, shows us two kings who choose to respond very differently to the good news of Jesus Christ and His arrival. And the entrance of his kingdom into this world. And the beginning of the loss of their own kingdoms. And those two men, those two kings, one chooses to respond by anger. And the other chooses to respond by faith in God and his word. And these two choices lead to two very different kings. Two very different kingdoms and two very different Endings, not only for the individuals involved who are making those choices, but everyone who's close to them. And such is always the case in this world. Our choices affect not only ourselves, they affect others as well. And those two kings we're talking about are King Herod and Joseph. Joseph, the son of David, who is the legal heir to King David. And in his own right, even though he is only a carpenter, as a result of the exile, he is indeed of the line and lineage of the throne of David. And he will give up his throne to his adopted son, a son who is not his own, a son who is born to Mary, a virgin, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's worth noting... For these two men, how they respond to the loss of their kingdoms, how they respond to the loss of control, how they respond to a history that is taking place that goes beyond their control. And it's worth noting that regardless of their response or their opposition, Jesus always ends up in the right place. And Matthew always, repeatedly, as he goes through each event, as you go through this passage, you're going to notice he says one phrase over and over again, or some variation of it. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And in this way, what Matthew is doing is he's showing us, King Herod, Joseph, you and I, we have choices to make. We have decisions that we have to make. And our choices and our decisions will affect us and they will affect those around us, for better or for worse. But make no mistake, all our choices, they are all part of a story that is greater than ourselves. A story that is ultimately about Jesus and the sovereign work of God's Word. This is... Not Matthew's proposal, this is his assertion. This entire gospel, he's coming and saying, this is the word of the Lord, this happened, this is historically true, this is not a myth, this is not a fable. And as you walk through, he's showing us, and he's drawing a connection between the disciples who are reading this, 
and who are in a position where they're beginning to be persecuted by the Jewish community in Israel, the religious Jews, Saul of Tarsus, and they will go on to be persecuted by Rome, thrown into prison, separation of families, death, adults, sometimes wives and children, And Matthew is drawing a direct connection here between the life of Christ and the life they live. And he's beginning to show them nothing happens by accident. And yet at the same time, brothers and sisters, we're responsible for our decisions. But the hope is to begin to see through the eyes of Christ and the gospel that these things are all part of a story that is bigger than us. It's about Jesus. And it's about his kingdom. And brothers and sisters, you know this. One of the reasons we struggle so much, and this is made abundantly clear as I repeat over and over again, as everybody knows and you see all the data talking about the impact of social media on body image and on anxiety and mental illness, the more our world becomes all about me and myself, the more my world becomes an Instagram picture, reality becomes distorted. And the more we stare at ourselves and delight in staring at ourselves, brothers and sisters, the things that we have, the cars that we drive, all of those different things, the things that we want, we start to become what we look at. All the flaws, all the shortcomings, all the things that we cover over. We begin to miss out on seeing what is most beautiful and gracious of all. A God who has created us for Himself to glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever. And a God who gave His Son to die on the cross to cover over our sins so that we might have fellowship with Him. We lose that. Our world starts to become small. We stop seeing that the gospel is in fact the sovereign work of God, not men. And that brings us to our first point this morning. Could I have my next slide, please? Uh, The next one after this. Thank you. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. And it is the good news that the gospel is, in fact, the sovereign work of God's Word. And brothers and sisters, this is why the gospel is such good news for God's people. But it's also why the gospel is such bad news for the kings and the kingdoms of this world. And all those who aspire to control what ultimately doesn't really belong to them. And that extends, brothers and sisters, to our jobs, our education, our family, and our children. And every good thing that the Lord has given to us. At the end of the day, God's Word teaches us these are all gifts that the Lord has given to us. And we are stewards of these things. And one day, He will come and He will hold us accountable for what we did with them. The Gospel reminds all of us that regardless of how rich, how powerful, how important we may be, this world, this life, this story, every last detail is ultimately the sovereign work of God's Word. And there is nothing... And no one that can, that can stop the good news of God's word. Not King Herod in verse 16. Not Rome. Not Satan. Not sin. Not death. Not Republicans or Democrats. And it's helpful to think about what we jump up and down and get upset about. And how that would change if we did truly believe that all of these things that we holler about at the end of the day, are not greater than the king who rules all things. And sadly, this is the reality that King Herod refuses to accept. So as you go to verse 16, you're going to see that when King Herod sees that his deceptive and manipulative plan to destroy the Messiah has been undone, and what undoes his plan? The Magi choose to obey God's word rather than King Herod. How often do we get upset when people don't do what we ask them to do? Friends, spouses, children, the person who's working at the checkout counter. I think we all struggle with those things. I certainly do. You're waiting in that line. It's going on forever. 
Can we move this along? We struggle with those things. We live in a world that caters to giving us everything we want when we want. And when it doesn't happen, we get upset. And I'm as American as all of you. So that's me too. And we see here what gets King Herod upset is that the Magi choose to obey God. And that's how God comes in and upends our apple cart. People come in and they're willing to obey Christ rather than us. And suddenly, we're held up and we start to get frustrated. King Herod responds like most of us do when we don't get what we want. When people don't listen to us, when they don't validate us, when they don't do as we say, when they don't give us what we want, whether it be in Jerusalem or Trader Joe's. King Herod throws a tantrum. And in verse 16 it says he becomes furious, or literally he becomes exceedingly angry. And in his anger, he chooses to make others pay for his discontent. And this ultimately is the path of anger, brothers and sisters. There is only one righteous anger, and that's in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and God. We are broken sinners. We're framed In the way of the world, we have sinful hearts. And it's rare that our anger, even what we think about being angry over what is right, it's rare that that is a pure anger. And when we let that anger go on, or we justify and we rationalize it, inevitably, brothers and sisters, we will hurt someone. Because the path of sinful anger is to make others pay for what upsets us. And King Herod is exhibit A in this. And what does he do? He orders the execution of all the male children in Bethlehem two years and under. New Testament scholar R.T. France estimates that the population of Bethlehem at this time was probably under a thousand people. It had probably become a very small village. Even though it's referred to as a polis or a city, that term polis or city can range from a big metropolis to a tiny little village. And probably there were around a thousand people, he estimates, and so the estimated number of children who would have been killed who were under two years of age would have been probably between 20 and 30 children. And regardless of how big or small you think that is, it's horrific. And as you read through the historical accounts of the first century, both Jewish and Roman, you see that as Herod comes to the end of his life, which this coincides with, this account is very consistent with much of King Herod's activities, which consisted of killing anyone or anything that threatened his throne, including family members, including prominent citizens. So it's not a stretch to think that King Herod would have no compunction at killing a bunch of country bumpkins' children in an obscure little village somewhere. And yet what we'll see for the heart of the Lord, it is no less horrific Now our temptation, brothers and sisters, and I want to bring this back because anger is something we all struggle with. Our temptation in these moments is to say, I lost control. Our temptation is to describe King Herod as he's out of control. That's what we describe when things get really ugly. I lost it. Right? I've used that excuse many times. But basically, when we say that, we're saying we're not responsible for our anger. And nothing, brothers and sisters, could be further from the truth. Because King Herod is not out of control. He's very much in control. And everything he's doing is to maintain control. As we all are when we explode or we have anger or tantrums. When we do so, we consciously choose to unmask or unleash the ugliness and the pride in our hearts. The hatred that we usually keep covered up or under wraps when it is convenient to us. And then when it's not convenient to us, we unleash or let those things out very frequently trying to use our anger as a form of control. To bully, to intimidate, to get what we want. And that's exactly what King Herod is doing. And he is, brothers and sisters, very much in control. 
Sadly, many of us have experienced variations of King Herod in our lives. That phrase, walking on eggshells, as we know, whether it's not us or someone else, where we are tiptoeing around in case there's going to be an explosion of that anger which is being used to control an environment or to control a room or to control a family or to control a church. Well, brothers and sisters, the good news of God's Word is that neither God nor His Son walks on eggshells. And because this is His world and this is His story, His gospel is infinitely greater than our anger, our rage, and our selfishness. And we see this unfold, that in spite of all King Herod's murderous efforts to destroy anyone remotely connected to Jesus, Matthew goes on to show us in the rest of this passage, what does he show us? Not only is King Herod unable to stop the gospel, he unintentionally spreads it. And he unintentionally helps fulfill God's word. And we see here again what we see in Genesis 50. That what men mean for evil, God uses for good. And we see this happen in the history of the gospel, and the history of Acts, and the history of the church, over and over and over again. Now it doesn't remove suffering from us, brothers and sisters. It doesn't mean we get a free pass and everything's good and you become a Christian and everything gets better. But what you do see as you read through the whole story is persecution comes and men come and they believe they're going to get rid of these things and we're going to make your life so miserable all of this is going to go away and yet God uses those very things to spread the church in Acts. And guess what? He does the same thing in the Roman Empire. And he does the same thing, brothers and sisters, in Muslim countries around the world. And he does the same thing in China and in Russia. And he has shown over the history repeatedly, we still need to pray for our brothers and sisters who are in Afghanistan. We need to weep with them and their plight is severe. And yet at the same time, we must remember that the men who perpetrate these horrors are not greater than the God or the gospel. And that's been proven over and over again throughout the history of the church. The question for us, brothers and sisters, is will we be a part of it or not? Well, in the end, the gospel forces King Herod to confront the hard truth that we all must face. Regardless of our power or privilege or our efforts, no one can hang on to their kingdom or their crown. And when Christ appears, no one can stop death or God's word or the good news of Jesus Christ. Not King Herod, not Steve Jobs, not Vladimir Putin. And why? It's because the good news of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, is God's work, it's not ours. And this is something that we easily and quickly forget, do we not? How often do we treat the gospel like it is a pill? We take it out when we have a headache, and when a friend is having a hard time, we offer it to them to make them feel a little bit better. And then when the headache's gone and the problem's gone, we put the pill away back in the medicine cabinet and we go on with our regular lives. And how often do we use God's Word, brothers and sisters, Like a Google search. I have a problem. Let me open up the Bible. Let me find out the things that I need to do so my life will be okay. My marriage will be okay. My family will be okay. Got the answer. Got the to-do list. Now it's done. Moving on. And when we do that, brothers and sisters, we're really no different than King Herod. Because what we're trying to do is we're trying to control the gospel and God's word in order to get a good outcome rather than letting the gospel and our Lord and Savior Jesus control us. And this brings us to our second and final point this morning, and I do warn you, it's a long one. The gospel is the good news that Jesus is greater than our kingdoms of sin and suffering and death. The gospel is the good news that Jesus is greater than our kingdoms of sin and suffering and death. In Matthew 16, or excuse me, Matthew 2 verse 16, Matthew takes us all to a very, very uncomfortable place. 
And it's what the gospel does and must do. Takes us to the place where part of the gospel's story is the death of children at the hands of a violent and evil man. God, through Matthew, shows us that sin and suffering and death are part of the gospel story. And they are part of our story. And I don't know about you, but when sin and suffering and death come into my story, and they come close to people who I love or I cherish or I esteem, Brothers and sisters, I personally struggle with that. I do. I have a hard time with it. There are many times where I'm asking the Lord, Lord, why is this happening? Why do you allow this to happen? The flow of this passage completely is that God is sovereign and in control. That nothing happens apart from God's word. That's why Matthew repeatedly says, so this happens so that it might be fulfilled, so that what the prophet spoke might be fulfilled. God, if God is good, why does He allow men like King Herod to do what they do? Why do children like these suffer and die? And why does the Son of God and Joseph and Mary, why do they get to go? And in verse 17, God, through Matthew, provides the help we need. And the beautiful thing about the Gospel And the beautiful thing about our God and the beautiful thing about His Word is He does not avoid the ugly, the difficult, or the uncomfortable. Which, brothers and sisters, many times is what we're trying to avoid when we get upset. And the sad thing is, is when we try and do and deal with things that way, we become the ugliness. The very thing we're trying to avoid. Well, God doesn't do that. Instead, He walks through it. And He walks through it with us. And He shows us through the light of His Word what's really happening. And Matthew does that for us in verse 17 when he says, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. That all of these things, including these children getting killed, this is a fulfillment of what God had spoken, warned, And laid out in his word through the prophet Jeremiah. Now to appreciate this correctly, we have to understand the context. And we have to understand God. And it's worth noting who exactly Matthew is referring to. He's referring here to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. And his name means Yahweh establishes. The Lord establishes. And he lived from 627, or his ministry was 627 to 570 B.C., around 100 years after Isaiah, and obviously 600 years before the birth of Jesus. And when you go to the book of Jeremiah, and I pray one day that we will be able to walk through it together, Jeremiah is called by God to a sorrowful and sad ministry. And why is he called to a sorrowful and sad ministry? called by God to call God's people to repentance. And it's interesting what he calls them to repentance for. Very specifically for being both religious and reprobate. God's people want to have it both ways. They want to show up. They want to offer sacrifices. They want to make big money. They want to have alliances with all the nations around the world. They want to worship at other altars. They want to make sure business and prosperity is going well. So they continue to show up into the temple. And when people say there's something amiss here, they say, but we have the temple. We have the presence of the Lord. We have Yahweh. We have God. It's how many Christians in America still function today. We're okay. We can do whatever we want because we have Jesus. God calls Jeremiah to call these people to repent for trying to manipulate and use God and His worship to control. For trying to manipulate and use God and the worship in the temple for their wealth and their well-being, just like all the other kings and nations and religions of the world. That's what we do. We go up to the temple, we light incense, we give offerings, we put... Vegetables and fruit at the front of the restaurant. We do all of those different things. We say those prayers so that 
things go well with us and things run smoothly and we're juiced in with the big man and we have a good life. And by the time we get to the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord said, I've had enough of this. Enough, enough, enough. You, as he says in Isaiah 2, you, you worship me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. And God speaks through Jeremiah to express his sorrow, his grief, and his heartbreak over this wickedness. And he calls his people who he saved to repentance. And he offers them forgiveness and grace. But he also, through Jeremiah, warns that if they do not turn from their sin and idolatry, and they don't turn to the Lord for salvation and deliverance, and they don't place their trust in the Lord rather than all of these things, and their desire to manipulate and control, He is going to bring judgment. A judgment that's going to bring sorrow and suffering and death that's going to culminate in exile. The people of God being cast out of the promised land and cast out of fellowship with God and cast out of the presence of the one who has saved them and made them who they are. Just like the Garden of Eden. They do not turn from their sin and idolatry and they don't turn to the Lord. It's a warning. You have your Bibles, turn in Jeremiah and go to verse chapter 1, verse 17. Bear with me, I believe there is a payoff that will be an encouragement to you. Jeremiah 1, 17. What does the Lord through Jeremiah say to this people? And he's talking about the judgment that is coming. Have you not brought this upon yourself? Or have you not done this to yourself? The NASB. By forsaking the Lord your God when He led you in the way. Now jump down to verse 19. Your evil will chastise you. Or the NASB says, your own wickedness will correct you. And your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me, or the awe or appreciation or respect of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. Okay, what's the Lord saying here? Bear with me. I know this is an Old Testament stretch, but you have to appreciate the context here. God's saying here, He says, you think you're big. And you've gone and made me small in your eyes. But he points out to them that when judgment comes, it is going to be their own evil, their own wickedness that is going to come upon their heads and provide the correction. We point the finger at God, but when God comes down here and he says... You want to run the show. You want to live through evil and apostasy. I will give it to you. And the rest of Jeremiah shows his judgment will come through the exile. You want worldly kings. You want worldly kingdoms. You want the wealth and honor and privilege of this world. I'm going to give them to you. And men like King Herod will kill your sons and you will know that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. I probably gave you the wrong reference, right? I gave you 117, it's 217. Okay, I'm a fallible man, my mistake. Late late last night at the wedding. No. <clears throat> Not for me at least anyways. I'm sorry. <clears throat> Excuse me, it was 217, 219. Chapter 2, not chapter 1. Okay, God goes to Jeremiah and says, all the things that you're pursuing I'm going to give to you. And they're going to become a bondage to you. And you're going to see the extent of the evil and wickedness and the evil and wickedness of all of these things that you're doing. They're going to be your correction. You're going to see that you can't play fast and loose. When you do so, you destroy other people's lives. And you think it's okay because it's other people's lives who are going to get destroyed by all the things that you're doing. You want to cheat on your wife? Guess what? 
You want to abuse substance, guess what? You want to make money off the backs of other people, guess what? I'm going to show you what it's like to be those other people. And your own wickedness is going to come home to you. Including having evil kings who reign over you. And exploit and abuse you and use you as the object of their anger when they don't get what they want. And so the exile continues. And when Matthew writes, and when Jesus shows up on the scene, the people in Israel and in Bethlehem are still living out the consequences of the exile. Yes, they have come and returned, but the king who reigns over them is not a Jewish king. He is not a godly man, and he's certainly not the king that God has promised. And he plays fast and loose, just like the Jews did back in Jeremiah's time, where he uses the gospel and the worship in the temple for his own ends to control, to make sure his life is good. And when Matthew writes after King Herod's murder of all these male children in Bethlehem, when he says, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. And then he quotes Jeremiah 31.15. He says, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Jeremiah uses that term weeping twice. And what Jeremiah is doing is he's speaking figuratively here, but he is the voice of the Spirit of God expressing weeping and sorrow and lament over the loss that happens when people turn their backs on the Lord. Specifically, he's speaking of the exile. And he's speaking when the Babylonian and Assyrian empires come in and destroy the temple and they take away the children of Israel, people like Daniel and remove them, and they evacuate them, and they take them as captives to a foreign country, and they are separated from their families. But there is also the killing of children that happens at that time as well. And speaking on behalf of the Lord, he's saying this is a sorrowful thing. We need to weep over this. We need to cry over this. This breaks the heart of God. We need to consider how all of this came about. That what we're experiencing in this separation and loss of fellowship with God, and when we lose our fellowship with God, brothers and sisters, sin separates, we lose our fellowship with one another. Broken families, brothers and sisters, don't just start in a horizontal level with us. It's what we say at all the weddings that we gather in. Remember Christ, remember Christ, remember Christ, men. When you forget Christ, your marriage is in ruins. Right? It doesn't happen overnight. The consequence of our sin and apostasy, as warned and promised by God, is suffering and sorrow that come from being separated from God and separated from those we love. And from Genesis onwards, this, brothers and sisters, has always been the consequence of neither trusting the Lord nor honoring Him for who He is and for trying to make our kingdoms big. But that's not the end of these words. In Jeremiah 31:15, as Jeremiah expresses this lament and expresses God's heartbreak over this, if you have your Bibles, turn to Jeremiah 31, and I think I have the right chapter this time. We see that this is not the end of the story. Jeremiah 31:15, thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, verse 16, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children shall come back to their own country. What God is doing through Jeremiah is He is offering a word of hope. And He's showing that judgment will come, but God's salvation will follow. 
And that there is hope beyond judgment and there is hope beyond tragedy and there is hope beyond the devastation of our sin and our apostasy. But that hope, brothers and sisters, comes from one place and one place alone. It comes from God. And he's making reference to the end of the exile when God will take a repentant people out of the foreign nations and bondage of slavery and all those places that they have been. He's going to hear their grieving. He's going to hear their cries. They're going to turn to him and repent and say, Lord, we blew it. And he's going to forgive them and he's going to bring them back into fellowship and he's going to bring them back to the promised land. And the exile here is a foreshadowing and looking forward to the one who will bring God's people out of the darkness of sin, who will end the weeping and restore fellowship with God and bring a life after the sin and the suffering and the death. But he's going to do it in his time, brothers and sisters. And he's going to do it in his way. And that's why in Jeremiah 31, 17, he says, There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And as we come back to this passage, as Matthew writes about this moment, as these children are killed, he's drawing a connection before us with the work of God. That this is devastating and horrific. We should weep and be sad over these things. We cannot overlook these things. We must condemn it as evil. But we must see that this is the evil of men defending their kingdoms. This is the evil of men trying to control for their own benefit at the expense of others. And yet in this story there is one in His time and in His way, who Himself will go to the cross, who Himself will give His life, who Himself will be sacrificed and killed. For what purpose and for what end? So that He might bring many who are sinners back to His Father who is in heaven. Does that give these mothers their children back? No, it does not. But does it show us that the story is bigger than just suffering and death? Yes, it does. And brothers and sisters, as we deal with people in this world and time who have lost a loved one, who have been the object of abuse, who have suffered, brothers and sisters, we can't give them their lives back. No, we can't. But what we can do is we can point them to the gospel. And we can point them to a God who is willing to give His Son so that these people might know God as their Father, so that they might be reconciled, so that they might be brought out of exile, which is where so many who have suffered from abuse or who have been in darkness rest. And they can enter back into the light. And they can begin to see that the story of the gospel is far bigger than those moments of sadness and sorrow and suffering and sin. And they might not be able to understand it immediately, but over time they might be able to see that their lives are part of a story that is bigger than themselves. That the reason Jesus came was to take us out of the kingdom of men. And to bring us to a king and a kingdom that is greater than our sin and our suffering and our death. And though we might not always get all the answers in this world, brothers and sisters, we cannot necessarily go to someone who's lost a loved one and provide an answer for why that child was taken away. What we can do is we can point them to a God who loves, a God who cares, a God who comforts, and in due time provides a way to move past those things and one day, in His way and in His time, provide a reconciliation that this world cannot offer. And as we come to the next passage, what we see in the comparison between King Herod and Joseph 
is Joseph is able to move past. Why is he able to move past? Because he continues to walk with Christ rather than trying to control and fix and protect a tiny little kingdom that one day will pass away. Brothers and sisters, this leaves us with a choice. Whose kingdom are you living for and are you living in? Our lives and the things that get us upset. And brothers and sisters, we all struggle with these things. What are we fighting for? What makes us angry? What is it that yanks our core? What is it that we're trying to control? That God is coming in and saying, this is my kingdom. And this is my house. And I am bigger than this. And you can trust me and you can walk with me. In everything, brothers and sisters, we always have two choices. Am I going to stand and fight for my little crown and my little kingdom? Or without understanding or knowing exactly what's going on? Am I willing to trust in a king who has died to give me his kingdom? A kingdom that is greater than the sin and the suffering and death of this world. I may indeed suffer. I will indeed die. But will those things be an expression of a love that comes from above? Or a kingdom that is fading quickly? Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, You came so that we might no longer live for ourselves, but instead that we would have the hope of living for one who is greater than us and for a kingdom that has come to put an end to sin and suffering and death and instead to give us nothing but the goodness of fellowship with the God who created us, who loves us, and is able to make all things right in your time. In your name we pray. Amen.